Wow, as we come to message 22 in the book of Hebrews, let me remind you that this book is written to Jewish background Christians who have been scattered across the Roman Empire by persecution. And the writer, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, is reminding these Christians, Jewish Christians, of the great work of Christ. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the Old Covenant, which was good in its time. But look to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. This is a theme that goes throughout all 13 chapters. Um, Indian poetry is uh, the same outline that I have, if you wish to follow. And uh, I want to state that there are historical objective <coughs> facts about the old covenant of atonement which has now been replaced by a new and better covenant based on the work of Christ. That's a thing we see throughout this book. It's important to not go back to the old priestly system, the old sacrifices. But what has Christ done for us? Just two points today. Verses 1 to 5 give us details of the old tabernacle. We read in Exodus 26 about how God told Moses to have a tabernacle built. He selected craftsmen, artisans, skilled people to do that work according to a pattern that God gave Moses upon the mountain of Sinai. See, the details, why does this writer remind us of these details? And let me just suggest that this points to the historical reality of what God did for Israel. You see, experts about Egypt say the Jews were never slaves. The Jews never 
went on an exodus. The Pharaoh and his army were never drowned in the Red Sea. Listen to the experts and what they're denying is that the Old Testament scriptures, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, never happened. But I'm suggesting that the writer is showing and reminding there was a tabernacle. It was built according to a pattern that God gave to Moses. Now why is this important? The people of Israel are God's covenant people. God chose this small insignificant group of people to be his people. All across the human race people practice worship and spirituality but not according to God's pattern. Mm -hmm. We had this, this discussion before church about how God wants us to worship according to the biblical truth, according to His ways of worship. And so we're reminded here in Hebrews 9, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am your God. Have no other gods. Make no images. This is how you worship me, the true God. Don't worship like the Gentiles. Those who worship like the Arabs in Arabia. Don't worship like the people in Canaan. Don't worship like the Egyptians did. Leave that behind. I will instruct you how to worship me by giving you a detailed, beautiful tabernacle. I gave Moses, your leader, the pattern. This pattern is not like the temples of Hindu or of Buddha or any other religion. This is a pattern that shows us how God wanted to be worshipped. So what does he say here? The details of this tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was used for the 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert of Arabia before they got to the Promised Land. Structures were made 
to worship God in Israel, in Canaan. Remember, Jesus said, David came when he was hungry to the house of God and ate the special showbread when they were hungry. But all that is replaced when God allows the temple to be built during King Solomon's time. But the temple basically is an expansion of the tabernacle as a place of sacrifice and worship. And so what we see is God saying, you're not going to worship like the heathen, like the pagans. As you say, man wants to worship God in the ways they think is good, like we discussed. Let's just use this type of music. Let's dance. Let's take off our clothes. Let's do whatever we want. If our hearts think it's right, it must be good. But God is saying, that's not how you approach me. The living God, that's how you approach idols. Not me. And so, there's this, in history, this perfectly designed tabernacle. We read in Exodus 26. It was beautiful. It was done with great skill. The veil was a certain type of linen, a certain color, certain colors of threads. There was certain pieces of furniture, beautiful, overlaid with gold. You see, they didn't just say, well, Moses, what do you think? Let's chop down that bush. Let's make this altar. Let's do whatever we want. No, God said to Moses, to worship me, you design it this way, with this furniture, with beauty, with skill, overlay with gold. And so we read here that the ordinances of design, divine service in this earthly sanctuary, excuse me, sanctuary. In other words, God says, I've given you a holy place to approach me. You're not holy, but in this place, sinful Israel can approach me, the holy God, a sanctuary of my design. The tabernacle was prepared. 
according to God's plan. Again, Moses just didn't say, let's build something. You know, we got some nice stones. We got some nice wood. Let's make something. Again, that's how man has done it. Now, man sometimes has made some very beautiful temples and shrines. You go to London in Southall. There's a sick temple that's like three square blocks. It's huge. It's magnificent. The Taj Mahal in this India dedicated to a man's wife, but a temple of beauty. But God said, you don't worship like the heathen. I'm going to have you build a tabernacle after my design. It's prepared so that Israel can worship. It's not a Gentile place. It's for the Jews, the people of my covenant. Now notice some of the details. There's a lampstand that signifies perpetual burning oil that gives light. There's a special table overlaid with gold. If you read again in Exodus, certain things at this position, the table at this position, again, it's not haphazard. It's orderly. And, and then on this altar is what they call the showbread or the bread of the presence. Why is it called this? Because the priest made this every day. New loaves of bread dedicated to God placed in this sanctuary. It indicated that the Almighty God, the presence of God, the transcendent, holy God, is dwelling with Israel. That's why it's called the bread of presence. And so, it's baked every day and put there. That's why only the priests were allowed to eat it. So when David and his men were hungry, they were doing something different. Yet Jesus said they did it because of their hunger. That's a different discussion. But, so you see, there's a lampstand of perpetual burning oil, a golden table, the bread of presence, 
Now, the writer says, this outer section is called the sanctuary. To be sanctified is to be set apart or holy. So, another way is saying this outer section of this tabernacle is a holy place, a sanctuary. Now, who could go into it? Could just anybody of the 12 tribes? No. Even Moses did not because he was not a priest. Only the priest of the line of Aaron, of the line of Levi, who were consecrated, chosen as priests, went into this sanctuary. Not just any man, but a man chosen, consecrated by the law of God to stand and minister in God's presence on behalf of the people. Now, it's a big duty. There were many priests. Not one priest could do it all. There were orders of priests. And they took turns ministering in this sanctuary. And what did they minister? Offerings, sacrifices, prayers. They had specific responsibilities. And these priestly duties were done seven days a week, 365 days a year on behalf of the nation of Israel. Because, you see, the common people could not just walk in and say, well, I've got my sacrifice. I've got a dead bull. I've got a dead goat, and I want to do it my way. We discussed this earlier. The priest, the sons who offered the incense fire in the wrong way, were judged. So God said, here's the way the priests function. And so they had these strict rituals in order to represent the people before God. Now, uh, so this first outer place, the holy place, the sanctuary, where the priest ministered, now he continues. But there's a part of the tabernacle this is the next verse called the holiest of all or the most holy place. And uh, the outer part, now this veil, this beautiful veil of blue linen 
with red and gold threads with the images of the cherubim. A specific place of beauty. But this veil separates. Here's a holy place. But behind it is a most holy place. The holiest of all. And so, uh, point one, I made a, a typo. It says uh, the holiest of all. The holy to be the holy of holies. But I said the holy of the hokies. And uh, that doesn't have anything to do with Virginia Tech University that are called the hokies. My mistake. But notice what God has set this up. Here's the pattern. Here's a place that's holy where the priest can minister on behalf of the people. But there's this veil that separates. And there's a most holy place. The holiest place that indicates the presence of the living God before his people. No one can go into it. Not even the most dedicated and devout priest, but only one man, the high priest, on the day of atonement, what is called Yom Kippur, that is the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Now, so get this picture, this beautiful tabernacle, a holy place, then a most holy place. And what's it behind this veil? What does he say? There's a golden censer. What is a censer used for? It's a place where you burned incense. Constantly, the burning of incense that represents like prayers of the people to God. In the book of Revelation, it says the incense is the prayers of God's people. And so, in the most holy place, there's a censer. What else? There's a box. It's called the what? The Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony overlay on all sides with gold. Now, this is not some mystical, magical, supernatural box. That's what people made it out to be. That's what Hollywood said. Indiana Jones and the Ark, right? Let's get the Ark 
before the Germans because it's special. It's magical. This notion, this superstition was carried out even by Jews. We're fighting the Philistines. We're losing. Let's get the special box. That's carrying out the battle. Surely we got God's box and we'll defeat those godless Philistines. And what happened? God's not pleased with this desecration of this object. And Israel was defeated and the ark was taken by the Philistines to the house of Dagon, their idol, their chief god. God was not pleased. And when the priests came in, guess what? Dagon had fallen over. So the priests think, let's pick this big idol up, put him back. They come back the next day, and Dagon is chopped to pieces. God does not share his glory with idols. But this box, this ark, is not just this supernatural, magical box. But it is special because it represents God's covenant, God's testimony with this sinful people that he chose brought them out of Egypt into the lands of promise. You were not my people, but I made you my people. This special ark signifies that covenant. Now, look at this pulpit behind us. It's a box. It's about the same size. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't that big, about four feet by two feet by two feet, made of acacia wood, covered with gold. On top of that box, that Ark, is what's called the Mercy Seat. That's the special lid of the box. It can be opened. It represents a seat where God comes and dwells with Israel. Now God is a spirit. He's transcendent. He's not omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's not confined in time and state space, but the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat represents the presence of God with his people. And this mercy seat has two figures carved overlaid with gold representing an angelic class called cherubs or cherubim, angels. The singular is cherubim, the plural is cherubim, 
but the cherubim were angels that served in the presence in the throne of God. So this is a visual representation to Israel of the presence of God and angels who serve God. Do not misunderstand that while it's okay to make images and statues as a way to worship, these carved cherubim covering the mercy seat are just meant to represent that God is with this people. And by the way, the cherubim is mentioned in Genesis when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. It says there was a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the garden to keep man from it. And so these are powerful angels, but not to be worshipped. The statue is not to be worshipped. It indicates the presence of the living and true God. Now, so here's this beautiful book. By the way, a side note. The word ark. Wasn't there another ark in the Old Testament that some guy named Noah made? Right. A big ark. But, you know, our picture, we always draw these pictures. Here's this big boat. It's got curved sides. It's got a little structure on the top. Giraffe sticking out. Yeah, various. No, the ark was basically a box. So many cubits long. So many cubits wide. So many cubits wide. It was not a specially designed boat. It was a box meant to float to protect Noah and his family against the great flood. It wasn't meant to be steered. It didn't have sails and a rudder. It's basically a box just to save God's people. Just, that's a side note. But now, what's in the box? The ark. There's several things. Now, why, again, is this important? This is historical, objective fact. People scoffed. Now, Israel didn't exist. They weren't brought out of Egypt. God didn't do these things. The Old Testament isn't true. But the writer is saying, this is true. Because what was in that covenant, that ark of the covenant? Well, there was a bowl, a golden bowl of what? The special bread that God 
Van Israel for 40 years. You don't believe me? Look, there's the same food. I fed your people all those years. What else is there? Aaron's rod, his staff. Was it special? Did did Aaron go and say, look, I got a special piece of wood. It's got supernatural powers. Like Gandalf's staff and the Lord of the Rings. No, but they placed that rod before the presence of God. And the next morning, when he goes to pick it up, it had bloomed and flowered. A supernatural sign that God's with his people. And so the writer said, you don't believe it? Look, there's a bowl of special food. There's the rod of Aaron's that budded. And uh, there's the tablets of the covenant. Now, Moses, in his anger, broke the first two tablets. And God gave him a second set. God told him, make two more tablets, just like the first. Bring them up on the mountain, and I will write my law on them. Another historical evidence of what God did out in the desert. Manna, the rod, the Ten Commandments. Now, that's all the details. That's the details of this tabernacle. But now, quickly, verses 6 to 10. What are the duties how did the priests function and how does the writer of Hebrews summarize this back to Jesus Christ well again as we talked about before church Men and women, most people believe there's some type of God. Most people try to give some type of worship to God. Often it's done through idolatry and satanic means. God is saying, my people worship me according to my word in spirit and in truth. And so there are temples and priests all over the world. There are priests and temples in Africa, in South America, in Asia, in North America. But God is saying, 
That's not how I'm to be worshipped. But I'm setting up a place of worship and a priesthood to guide my chosen people in worship. And so he says, all this has been prepared. And the priest went into this tabernacle, this holy place to offer services, offerings, sacrifices, prayers, certain rituals as detailed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Again, they didn't just say, let's dress like we want to. Let's do what we want to. Let's bring any type of animal. You know, there were detailed instructions. What kind of animals? Or what kind of sin offering? What kind of prayers? God is a God of order. And so these priests did this. Now, it's hundreds of years before the temple was built. But in the temple, for since Solomon, about 1000 BC, these sacrifices continue until the work of Christ in the you know what we would say, 1830 or so. What does the priest do? He offers sacrifices in the first part of the tabernacle. But he says in verse 7, that second part, the priest, the chief priest, the most devout priests, they don't go through that veil to the most holy place. Who goes there? He says, only the high priest. The high priest is a person selected to represent the whole nation. Now, Somebody didn't say, let me be high priest. I think I'd be a good one. I went to school for that. No, God chose the high priest. Probably changed year to year. It's a tremendous responsibility because this is the only priest allowed to go into this inner sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. Now he didn't just say, you know, I'm tired of working out here. I think I'll go in there. No, there's this strict custom and rituals. This priest doesn't go without 
certain cleansings, certain rituals, certain clothing. And he says here that this priest does not dare go without blood. Again, the instructions, the high priest, they kill a bull and a goat. So this priest, with all this ritual, special clothing, everything, now I can go through the veil and sprinkle the blood of the bull and the goat on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, with the cherubim. And that represents that God looks down on the blood offering and is pleased to cover Israel's sins for one more year. And this priest, he said that he offers this prayer for himself. I'm the sinner. And for all the people Hundreds of thousands, men and women, teenagers, children, young and old. The blood is sprinkled on behalf of myself, the other priests, and the people. And God sees it and is pleased. But again, he doesn't dare just do this. This is a strict procedure. If the high priest does it wrong, in disobedience, he will be charged to death. So, the Jewish priests know this. And they died a rope around his ankle in case he died. Because if he dies and God is displeased, no one can go in and get his body. And, and this is serious. The Ark of the Covenant couldn't be touched. It could only be carried in a certain way with golden balls through those rings. And we read the story when it was transported one time and they stumbled and almost dropped the box. Let a man put his arm and touch the ark and die. So this is serious business. Sinful people can only approach God who's holy on his terms and not whatever we think yeah. is right. Again, we worship God according to His Spirit and the truth of Scripture. So, this serious thing. Now, in verse 8, you think about how sober this is. The high priest can only go into the holy of all these once a year with blood. And in verse 8, 
He said, there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit. The high priest is making this offering. The sins, the iniquities, the transgressions, the sins of omission and commission, but even sins done in ignorance. That's what he's offering. But in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is saying that as long as that tabernacle and that temple stands, no one has the ability to go into it. Think about this. What he's saying is you and I, these common priests, people, were not the high priest who could even dare to enter on a certain day. We have no ability to enter into the presence of God Almighty. Because we're sinners. And God is a consuming fire. Think about the seriousness of this verse. But the Holy Spirit was saying, as long as there's that physical tabernacle and temple, the way to God is closed. Except on that one day of the year. It's close to the common people. It's close to the non-priests. It's close to the women and children who weren't high priests. See what God has done in giving us Jesus Christ, he's broken down the old way, the old sacrifice, the old priesthood. And when Jesus died, what happened? There was an earthquake. The temple was shaken up. And that veil, that beautiful veil, was ripped in half. Top to bottom, signifying the old way has changed. And now, for the new way to approach God, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, this, all this was not known or manifest. Israel did feel this. They look forward to this. They look forward to the mediator of a new covenant. They look forward to a priest after the order of Melchizedek. They look toward the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. But that way was close as long as there's an old covenant. 
and the old priesthood, the old tabernacle. And so, you see what the writer is getting at. The old system, all these sacrifices performed daily in a special day of sacrifice on the Yom Kippur. But what does he say? All that sacrifice could not make one perfect before God. It could not cleanse the conscience. What could cleanse the conscience? The blood of Jesus. What could cleanse from the guilt of sin? Only the blood of Christ. And uh, you see, the Old Testament sacrifice system was given by God. It was good for what God intended. It governed. It shaded the people's sins from God. But it was temporary. It did not permanently remove sin or cleanse a person's conscience. In the last verse, you see, think about what it's like to be a Jewish person living not only under the moral law, but civil duties and ceremonial duties, rituals. And what does he say? All these various rituals concerning food. Don't eat that. You can eat this. Trim your beard. Cut your hair a certain way. Wear certain clothes. Celebrate certain festivals. Foods and drinks. All these ordinances. Fleshly ordinances. They were all in boast to guide Israel to live differently than the Gentile nations. But they couldn't cleanse from sin and cleanse the conscience. Think about how would you like to live under those rules? Wait. Do I have the right clothes? Can I eat that food? It looks pretty good. No, no. That's unclean. Don't touch it. Yeah. Can you imagine? We can't eat pork or bacon. You know. Basically, while the old covenant is in place, the Jewish people were bound by rituals and ordinances. But with the coming of Christ, the civil and ceremonial law is kept and dealt with. And the great sacrifice has been made. Cut the blood of Christ. It's been sprinkled once and for all for the sins of his people. 
And God, the Father, is satisfied. Sin has been propitiated and expiated. How do we know God is satisfied with the work of Jesus? Because he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven to take his place, the right end of it. God the Father was not pleased. Jesus would have stayed in the grave. But you see, to wrap this up, there's no other sacrifice for sin. The yoke was good as God gave it for its purpose. But the old has been replaced by a better covenant, better promises, a better priesthood, a better mediator, better promises. So a couple action points. Continue the reading Hebrews as we continue the rest of these chapters. And then action point two. Christian brothers and sisters, consider yourself delivered from the, the old system unto a new covenant. You're made right with God through Jesus. No other plot. Nothing should be taken away from Jesus. Nothing should be added to the work of Jesus. Just look to Jesus. And if you sin, you have access to God through Jesus, your mediator. Confess your sin. He will forgive it and make you righteous. So, Christians, the work of Christ is sufficient for your salvation and God is pleased with you because of it. And the third thing, listen, this is the only way of salvation. Acts 4.12 says, no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. So again, we must point Jew and Gentile to Jesus, the great priest, the king, the prophet. And we must warn them, don't look to other priests and other religions and other temples. That's idolatry. There's no salvation. There's no salvation in Buddha or Muhammad or the Hindus sacrifices and we must speak the truth to Jewish people the old system was good but God replaced it with the work of his son they may not like it but we must point them to the truth of scripture Father thank you for this great passage of Scripture, for what you teach us, the historical fact of a covenant 
of a tabernacle of ways to worship you in spirit and in truth. But you gave us something greater, a greater priest, a greater Lamb of God, an atonement that not just covers, but takes away our sin. Praise be to God. You remember our sin no more because of Jesus. Let us take courage and look to Jesus alone. Amen. Thank you.